Welcome to the Connection Church Athens podcast. Connection Church exists to connect all people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If you live in the Athens area, we would love for you to join us in worship Sundays at 11. Or if you would like more information about our church, visit us online at connectionchurchathens.com. We look forward to meeting you. Good morning, church. Good morning. I'm so glad that you're here. I'll confess to you, I think that this passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21, just been read for us, may be one of the more challenging passages that we've studied so far in the book of Romans. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, I'm going to challenge you this morning, don't be a lazy listener. Have you ever been a lazy listener before in church? You like, come in and like, entertain me, pastor. Let's not be a lazy listener, because there's going to be some things this morning that are not going to hit our ears right, because they're not going to be things that we like to think about ourselves or that people have taught us about the Bible, but we're encountering God's Word this morning. So I'm going to ask you, don't be a lazy listener, and let's not critique the Word of God. Let's submit to the Word of God. I'm going to set up something here really quickly, and this is probably more for my benefit than yours, but you guys know sometimes I like to have some visuals. And I want to show you what Paul's going to do here in Romans chapter 5. Paul gives us, you know, I want to say an illustration or an example, but that's, that's not really how we should understand these things. Sometimes I might say, you know, the Word of God is like you know, going to the dentist or salvation is like this. And it's, it's kind of these uh, morals with a, or stories with a moral sort of thing. Paul isn't giving us an illustration. He's describing reality. And he's telling us first about Adam. Can y'all see that? Yeah, I messed up the first time. <laughs> he's telling us about Adam. And then he tells us about Christ. Did you see this in the passage? Comparing these two men, and, te- and I will also say contrasting these two men. And here's his point. These two men are similar in only one way, and that is that through their lives and through their deeds, the rest of us are affected. The rest of us are affected through Adam and through Christ. And he's teaching us some very deep things about salvation. And again, this is not illustration. This is not a fictional story. He's describing reality to us. The first thing we see in this passage is that Paul is teaching us that sin is a universal problem. Sin is a universal problem. Read verses 12 through 14 with me. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so spread uh, death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. There's a lot there. Let's take it bit by bit. Sin is a universal problem. How does he start in verse 2? He tells us that sin entered the world through one man. Sin entered the world through one man. There's one person who, who fell and sinned against God and resulted in our fallen nature. You guys know it, who it is, Adam. 
Genesis 3, familiar story. Adam is set up by God in the garden to rule and to reign and to reflect the image of God, and God gives him one command. What is it? Don't eat the fruit. And Adam eats of the fruit. Now, some of us guys, we might want to stick up for Adam a little bit here and say, well, why would we say through one man sin entered into the world? Wouldn't, shouldn't we say through one serpent sin entered the world, right? Because it wasn't like Adam woke up one morning and said, well, I guess I'll eat of the fruit today. I guess I'll sin against God today. He was tempted by Satan. So why wouldn't we say through one serpent sin entered into the world? Or if you remember the story, and it's probably stepping on, uh, getting on dangerous territory here, but Satan tempted Eve who ate of the fruit and then gave it to his husband. So couldn't we say through, should I do it? Yes. Through one woman sin entered the world. What about the serpent? What about the woman? Y'all, God set up Adam with responsibilities to lead and serve his wife and to rule over the animals. And he didn't do it. He fell short. He didn't rule over the beasts of the field. He fell to temptation. He did not sacrificially lead his wife. He fell. God looks at sin. He said, that's Adam's fault. Adam's fault. Because God called him to lead. Men, you're going to stand before God one day. And you're going to want to blame your wife. You're going to want to blame your job. You're going to want to blame some other things. And God's going to look at you and say, I called you to lead. I called you to be a man. I called you to do what I've called you to do. Man, we got to lead. He says, through one man, sin entered the world. And then we see immediately the consequence or the curse of that sin. Through it, one man, sin entered into the world, verse 12, and death through sin. So what do we experience as a byproduct or a consequence of our sin? We experience death. Genesis 3, 19, God cursed Adam and said, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from the ground you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He's saying death is a result of sin. We're going to see it in just a couple of weeks. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is, I deserve death because of what I've done. I deserve death because I'm in Adam. And so we know Adam had, we're going to do three kids. You're like, wow, Liam, you draw so well. Thank you. Make sure this doesn't fall. We know Adam had a lot more than three kids, but I'm just thinking about kind of the three famous sons. We got Cain, Abel, and Seth. Were they perfect? Were they sinless? No, because Adam fell and his sin was given to his descendants. And as a result, they all died. And so if you kind of follow the genealogy down a little bit more to Seth's kids, right? And we have all these different people. Were they perfect? No. And then... It's a lot of stick figures. What about me today? I'll draw myself a little bigger. Am I perfect? Oh, thank you. Oh, wow. <laughs> Y'all knew the answer to that one. I'm fallen because I'm in Adam and I'm descended from him. And this is, idea is the doctrine of original sin. And I want you to understand this. It says in verse 12, through one man centered into the world, that's Adam, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned, which means I bear the fallen nature 
or the guilt of Adam from my conception. From my conception. Psalm 51, verse 5, I was born a sinner. This is David writing, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And there's this misconception out there that, you know, babies are born pure. Babies are born not fallen. And when, when I started my life, I had to fall like Adam. I started out sinless and then fell church, this isn't the truth of scripture. It's I'm in Adam and my parents are great. And I inherited my blue eyes from my parents. And I inherited my genetics that made me six foot 10 from my parents. But I also, that's right. But I also inherited their sin nature. And this is so important, y'all. Sin is a universal problem. And sin is not something you're exposed to early on in life. Sin is not something in culture that comes and grabs you. Sin is something that is in my bones. And it's something that I can't fight on my own. It's something I can't fix on my own because I'm in a line. I'm in a gene pool. I'm in a, a, a people or a kingdom that has fallen. And I can't be the solution because I'm part of the problem. Sin is in my bones. It's a universal problem. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I am a sinner, because I am in Adam. And he says death spread to all mankind. Verses 13 and 14 are hard. I want to just kind of explain to you what Paul's talking about here. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What is he talking about here? He's describing the, time, the period of time between Adam to Moses when man had fallen, but God had not given the law. He says, well, these people after Adam, maybe they just didn't know right from wrong. And maybe as a result, they, they shouldn't be uh, penalized for their sin or they shouldn't have to die. What about these people who didn't have the word of God between Adam and Moses? He says, we know experientially they died too. Why did they die even though they didn't have the law? Because they were in Adam worthy of death fallen people. And then in verse 14, he says, death reigned even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam. Who is he talking about there in verse 14? That there were those between Adam and Moses. And I would argue that there are those today who die even though they don't sin in the likeness of Adam. He's talking about babies. And he's talking about the unborn. He's talking about those who do not understand the gospel and do not understand and have not actively rebelled against the word of God. What about a child who lives for a day? What about a child who, who doesn't survive the birth? Why do they have to die? He says, we know, verse 14, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam, those who had not actively rebelled against God. Why do they die? Because the whole system, the whole family, the whole structure, the whole problem is broken because of sin. This is why the doctrine of original sin is so hard. Because when you hold that child, you realize 
You know, when I hold Reese, I'm thinking about 18 months ago in the hospital, you're holding that baby and you think, I love you, I want to do the best thing for you, but I have handed you a problem. That's my sin nature that I can't solve. You need Jesus because I gave you something that is deadly and that's my fallen condition. You know, this doctrine of original sin caused people to ask what happens to babies, what happens to un- the unborn when they die. And I want to let you know on the basis of the word of God, I stand before you today and say that we can have great confidence that those children go to heaven. Those children go to heaven. And I do believe in the age of accountability. I wish I could show you a place in scripture where it says, you know, the, the, the unborn or, or children who live for only a short amount of time go to heaven when they die. I wish I could show you that scripture, but I can show you 2 Samuel 12 verses 21 through 23. And I can show you that King David taught us that children who die before they have a chance to accept the gospel go to heaven. And I want to just kind of tell you this situation. 2 Samuel chapter 12, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba's pregnant. She's having a child. And and God tells David, that kid's not going to live. And we see David pleading on behalf of that child. And and then he gets news that the child had died. We're told that when the child dies, he stops praying for the child. And he gets up and he starts eating something. And this is his rationale. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows, maybe the Lord will be gracious to me and my child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? This is what he says. He says, can I bring the child back again? I am going to him, but he will not return to me. David understood. He said, I know that I'm not going to see that kid again because he's not coming back, but I'm going to him. David knew where he was going. Where was he going? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew he was going to see that kid again in heaven. And it is a great hope, church, that the God who said in Mark chapter 10, let the children come to me is holding in his hands right now the ones we didn't get to meet because of miscarriages and because of abortion and because of sickness. God's taking care of them. Amen, church? We serve a great God. We live in a world that likes to make light of sin. But this is what sin is. It's deadly. It's a universal problem. It is the source of death. It is the source source of heartbreak. It is the source of every evil thing. It is not something for us to play around with. It is something that needs to be defeated. Second thing I see in this passage is Jesus is a universal savior. Jesus is a universal savior. First, sin is a universal problem. Jesus is a universal savior. Verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For by the transgression of the one, the many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For by the one transgression, or the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. I'm tired of talking about this for a minute. Let's talk about this. 
I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 15, he says, the free gift of Christ is not like the transgression. So if we think this passage is about mostly comparing Christ and Adam, we've got it all wrong. He says there's one way that they're similar, and that is their work affects the rest of humanity. But in every other way, they are different. Every way they're different. I want to talk about what is the fundamental difference between Christ and Adam. I think we've got this idea that Adam came along, and for humanity, he did something wrong, and he gave us a negative 10, right? That he offended God, and somehow we're in the hole, and we get negative 10 because of what Christ had, or what Adam had done. But then Christ comes along, and by his work on the cross, he kind of just levels it out and gives us a plus 10, right? And so he kind of cleans up Adam's mess, or he kind of rights the wrong. And so now we're just back to a sum game of zero in this whole thing. Adam put us in the hole, but Christ comes and, and makes it all better, or at least levels it out. And that's not the description in verse 15 of all, at all. Look at what it says. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. How should we describe the difference between Adam and Christ? It says it in verse 15, much more. Christ, much more than Adam. Adam's failure is a big deal, but Christ's grace is bigger and better than Adam's failure. Do you see that in verse 15? Much more did the grace of God abound to the many. Christ didn't do a plus 10. He did a one, two, three, comma, one, two, three, comma. You know what I'm saying. You can do that at home, but when you're standing in front of people, you just can't do it. Christ much more. Christ much more. And what did Christ do in verse 15? It says, by the transgression of the one, by the fall in the garden, many died. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. How did Christ connect us to the grace of God? What did he do? Well, we would say by his work on the cross, he lived a perfect life and he was the sacrifice of sin. And on that cross, he was paying for my failure in Adam and the wrath of God was satisfied. He rose from the grave and through Christ, I can have peace with God. Y'all remember that? Romans 5.1. I love that it says that the grace of God abounds to the many or overflows to the many. You think of this idea, if you can just picture it visually, through Adam, sin just flows into the world. And that's our story. And death reigns because of Adam's failure. And we just see from this one man, all of this destruction and all of this chaos and, and, he, and just all of this darkness. But then through one man on a cross, grace flows out. Christ is our fountain of grace. We can't look to another source. There's only one source. And in Christ, there is enough grace to override the failure of Adam. It abounds to the many. I love the other versions that say that the grace of God overflows to the many. We've seen that word before. I know you remember this, but about two years ago when we were in Ephesians chapter 1, we saw that same word. The word that's translated abound or overflow. 
And this is where we saw it. We saw it when he was talking about the, the work of Christ. It says, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our wrongdoings, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. That word lavished is the same word that's being used here in Romans chapter 5. That grace that he pours out on us to cover up the failure of Adam, but not just to cover it up and make it a sum zero game, but to give us his righteousness so that we can be accepted by God. And when we studied Ephesians chapter 1, and I showed you that same word, lavish, was there. I showed you another picture of that word used in the New Testament. I want to remind you of it again today. It's in Matthew chapter 14. See a story about Jesus there that's very familiar, but Jesus feeds the multitude. He feeds the 5,000. What's the story there? He's sitting there teaching. There's a ton of people there, and the disciples say, hey, we need to let them go off to, their, to the cities to buy food because we don't have food enough to feed them. And Jesus finds a little boy. He's got a little small lunch, right? Five loaves, two fish. Y'all know the story. Jesus blesses the food, and he begins to pass out the food, and only two people eat, right? No. 5,000 people eat. 5,000 people eat by the, word of, by the work of Christ. And then when they all eat and they're satisfied and they're covered and their bellies are full, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, all right, go back around and pick up the leftover baskets of the food. And in that passage, it says, same word, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of overflowing or abundance. I love that picture with food, identify with food, I don't know about you. It's a picture of the grace of Christ, that by Christ, overflowing, abounding to the many, there is enough grace to satisfy all of us, and there is more than enough. And our God is powerful enough through the grace on the cross, not only to cover us from the failure of Adam and my failure as well, but to give us the overflowing, abundant, satisfying, cup running over grace of God. So here's the question. Everyone starts out here. We just did this in heart and soul too, so it's kind of fun. You guys know if you've been in heart and soul we all start out here. Negative 10. That's an understatement. It's a lot more than negative 10. But how do I get here? How do I get here? Third point. God has enough grace to cover your sin. I want to start. I know we read 15 through 17. I want to read 17 through the end of the chapter. For by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Much more, those who receive the abundance of the grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. What's the ticket? How do I get from here to here the justification of the gospel by faith. 19, for it's through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If you struggle with, I've done too much, 
to be saved. Underline verse 20. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's more grace in God than there is sin in you. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How do I get here? By faith. By believing in the sacrifice of Christ, what he did for me. You know what's amazing is just when you read this passage, we are so passive in this. Did you hear that? There's not a whole lot of us going on here. There's none of us going on here. We don't do the work. We believe in Jesus Christ. And this is the plea of Romans. Church, we're going to see it again and again. He's already been setting the stage for it. But he pleads with you, get out of Adam. Get out of this gene pool. Get out of this family. Get out of this story. And by faith, get into Christ. And so I ask you this morning, where are you? And what whiteboard are you on? We got a lot of people in our world right here blaming God, justifying their sin, trying to work their way into acceptance. A lot of people here trying to do it on their own. And Christ says, come to me. I have paid for it. I have overflowing, abounding grace from one source, and that is the cross. You come to me, and you will live. There's some of us, I think, are struggling with just this idea that sin's going to define me. This story is what it's about. I can't get past what I did 10 years ago. I can't get past my mistakes. God does not love me. He's not enough. Listen to the truth of God's word and recognize, trust him. He does have enough grace to cover your sin. Got to get out of Christ, or got to get out of Adam, and we got to get into Christ. You know, the term in Christ is strange. Paul uses the term in Christ more so in the New Testament than he does the term salvation. For Paul, salvation was to be in Christ. And that's kind of a strange term, in Christ. We don't, we don't talk like that. What does it mean? This example has always really helped me a lot. But if I told you I was going to fly to New York City, what would my relationship with the plane need to be to get there safely? What would my relationship with the plane need to be to get there safely? Would it be okay for me to be under the plane? Would that be good for me to get to New York City safely? What if I was on top of the plane? Beside the plane? following the plane, reading about the plane, going to church where people talked about the plane. I got to be in the plane. And the pilot will take me to my destination. But for me to get there and for me to be safe, I've got to get off the airport. I've got to get off the runway. And I've got to get into Christ. I need to be in the plane. Anybody remember the movie Air Force One? Anybody? Let's go. Kind of an older movie. I looked up the year it came out, 1997. Um, Let's just say that something very significant happened to me in 1997. I'll let you guess what that is. Let's just say I can tell you quickly how old the movie is. It came out in 97. But it's about the President of the United States, played by... Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, Han Solo guy. Yeah, that's right. And he's flying home from some speech. He's got his family on the plane, and the bad guys hijack the plane. 
And they think that Harrison Ford has jumped off the plane, but he's actually like hiding in like a corner of the plane, right? And he, get, you know, he fights back and he beats up all the bad guys and he gets the plane again. Do you have a picture on the screen of the, of the plane? And at the very last scene of the movie, this is what's going on. Y'all can see that high def stuff from 97 coming through. It's actually not that bad. But Air Force One is not looking so good because the, the terrorists dumped all the gas, all the oil, all the fuel off the plane. And so the plane's going to crash. And so the military sends up this other smaller plane. Y'all can see the big planes, Air Force One, and then the smaller plane. And they, they hook this rope to it. And for anybody on Air Force One who's going to survive, you know, Harrison Ford's family, they have to repel off of Air Force One into a new plane. Because anybody who stays on Air Force One is going to die. And I couldn't help but think about this movie when I think about these whiteboards and I think about Romans chapter 5. You and I are born on a plane headed for destruction. We're born on a plane that's going to crash. And we can laugh at that truth. We can disbelieve that truth. We can blame God for that truth. We can, we can, do, we can just sit around and play cards on that plane. But it doesn't change reality that it is going to crash. I cannot stay in Adam and live forever. And Christ came 2,000 years ago to offer you and I eternal life and overflowing grace to say, come get on my plane. It's headed to safety. And I beg with you and I plead with you this morning, get out of Adam, get into Christ. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come up. What is my life supposed to look like now that I'm on the right plane? Well, we don't just rappel down off of that plane that's headed out of control and say, hope they make it and go inside, enjoy the little peanuts and pretzels and stuff. We're called to actively, intentionally, with every moment in our life, make it about the mission of God, and that's getting people out of this plane and into Christ. And we as a church have just kind of started this challenge in this spring of who's your one? Who's that person that you know that is still fighting sin on their own and who needs to come to Christ? Who can you connect to a growing relationship with Jesus? I love hearing Matt's story today about somebody who just took the time out of their schedule to say, I want to connect you to Christ. Church, we need to be doing that every single day. And it's scary. It's hard. How do I start? Here's how you start. Let's get a name. Let's get a name. Let's stop making this about a city or workplace, people or family. Let's get a name. Let's get a face. Let's put our heart on someone out in our world who needs to know Jesus. Let's make it real. Let's not make it theoretical. Let's make it real. Romans is not theoretical. It's missional. So I'm going to ask you, if you did not do this last week, the band's going to play, and we've got these cards down here on the front, and they say, who's your one? On the back, they say, blank is my one. You're going to grab two of those cards, and you're just going to write, you know, if your one's Jim, uh, you're going to say, Jim is my one, and then on the second card, Jim is my one, and you're going to write two, you're going to fill out two of those cards. You're going to put one in the bucket. You're going to take one home for yourself. 
and you can just put it in your car. Don't ride with Jim in the car because that'll be awkward, but put it somewhere where you can see it, but Jim will never see it, right? I don't know, that's weird. You're my one, man, sorry. Uh, This is what that means. And pray for that person. Connect to that person. God moved heaven and earth so that you could be in relationship with him. And now he's calling you to connect to somebody else to reach them for the sake of the gospel. So let's get a name. We're gonna spend some time responding. I'm gonna ask if you would just come down to the front, grab your cards, fill them out if you have not done that as we sing. Church, I love you. This is not an illustration. This is reality. And I pray this is where you're standing today. If not, you need to place your faith in Jesus. I'm going to be standing right down there. I would love to talk to you about what it means to place your faith in Jesus. Let's pray together, church. God, I thank you so much for this time. Lord, and for your word, God, it is so clear. Grace overflows through the person of Jesus, and it covers up and exceeds and heals and redeems and restores the failures of sin. So God, I pray, would you guide us into truth, Lord? Would you spur us on to mission? God, would you be glorified as we sing? Thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.